You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn in our Bibles to the first letter of the Apostle Peter, which we've been studying together these Sunday evenings recently, and we are reading this evening in First Peter chapter 2, and beginning to read from verse 13 through to verse 17. If you're using the church Bible, I believe that's on page 1,218. 1,218. Um, for those of you who may be visitors, um, when many of our own congregation are away, not only do we welcome you, but we probably have to take a moment to explain to you what is happening in First Peter. We are studying this letter uh, as a letter written to Christians in a pre-Christian world believing that it has a powerful message for Christians living in a post-Christian world, which we clearly are. I think actually it's something of a myth that Scotland was ever a Christian country. I think it's highly doubtful that 50% of the Scottish population were ever churchgoers. There are parts of Scotland where I think the Reformation never reached uh, but we do have this reputation of having been a Christian country, and I think it's becoming more and more obvious as very deliberately and specifically uh, society and indeed our, our governments dismantle Christian principles, divine laws, that we are becoming a post-Christian country. And as we've been saying, uh, rather than be glum, some of you remember the glums on the radio, Ron and F, weren't they? Something like that, uh, very glummy people. Uh, rather than be glummy, uh, God's Word gives us great reason to be, to be optimistic and even excited, uh, stimulated by the fact that the New Testament begins to sound as though it were written for today, that cultural Christianity, which was an encrustation on our lives, beginning to disappear. So either you're the, tending towards the real deal, or it's obvious either that you don't make any Christian profession, or you're fiddling the books. And the world sees it when Christians are fiddling the books. Of course, the leaders in the newspapers will say the church needs to get on board with the way in which society is moving. As soon as anyone gets on board with the way society is moving, the press is down on them like a ton of bricks. Why? Because they're moving in the same direction as society. It's not a fair world. You learned that when you were seven, and your mother said there's no substitute for experience. And you learned that since you had none, it was an unjust world. It's always been like this. It was even tougher for Christians in Peter's day. And he's speaking about 
how to negotiate a non-Christian world as a consistent Christian. And he's speaking about three things, essentially, that characterize the Christian. First, that the Christian is characterized by a life of holiness in a series of different spheres. Second, how the Christian is characterized by a godly response to opposition that surprises non-Christians. And thirdly, how the Christian is marked by a life of humility. And we're in the middle of the first section. We are, we are called to be different, to be holy. And Peter is going to tell us how this applies now, not just in our personal life or in our church life, but our life in society, and especially in relationship to a non or even anti-Christian government. So, let's read God's Word, First Peter chapter 2 and from verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There are some few books in the history of the Christian church that have been memorable often just for a single sentence. Uh, it's a bit discouraging if you're the author of a book that's 100,000 words long, and the only sentence anyone who reads the book ever remembers is one single sentence. That is a fate suffered by Martin Luther's book written in 1521 entitled The Freedom of a Christian Man. Within the first few lines of that book, he makes this startling statement. He says, the Christian man is the freest man of all, and he is subject to nobody. The Christian man is the most submissive man of all, and he is subject to everybody. It's a bit like those two Proverbs, isn't it, in the book of Proverbs? Answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. These two statements sound as though they are very contradictory. Christian man is the freest man of all, Christian woman too, and he is subject to nobody. Christian man is the most submissive of all, and he is subject to everybody. Luther meant that paradox very deliberately. He meant the intellectual irritation 
that goes with that paradox, that kind of immediate instinctive response, you're contradicting himself, because he understood that Christians are a puzzle. They are a mystery, ultimately, to non-Christians. Indeed, later on in this letter, Peter is going on to say, don't be surprised that non-Christians are still surprised by the way you live. And in many ways, that's a huge clue to how Peter thinks about what it means to be a Christian in a non-Christian world. Just as the gospel is a surprise. Think about Jesus' parables that we've been studying in the morning. If you read any of Jesus' parables and it doesn't surprise you, by definition, you've missed the point. Every single one of Jesus' parables pulled the rug from underneath Jesus' hearers. They were constantly surprised by what he said. Jesus himself was a total surprise. And in that sense, too, the Christian believer, the, the person who has been gripped by the gospel, is, is always going to be a surprise. There's always going to be, I mean, even, even in the dullest of Christians, among whom I cheerfully include myself. I am a dull person with a very exciting private life. That's what a Christian may seem to be. Even the dullest Christian, you know, the stolid citizen, you know, the, the Christian young woman who apparently never does anything wrong, is always going to take the non-Christian by surprise. And in one area, this is undoubtedly true, as Peter helps us to understand here. It's the way in which the Christian, as a Christian with deep-seated convictions about their relationship to the Lord, negotiates a world that may have a government or a governmental system that is proving to be hostile to the gospel. The Christian both surprises and irritates the non-Christian. And of course, Peter got this straight out of the lips of Jesus, didn't he? Jesus said, you know what I'm going to make you disciples? I'm going to make you the salt of the earth. Now, of course, salt preserves, doesn't it? And that was its chief function in the first century. Uh, but it also creates a certain kind of irritation we have an expression, rubbing salt into your wounds. And that's one of the things the Christian does. The Christian is a preservative, and of course that's an irritation sometimes to those who are around him or her. And there's also something about the style of life, the dignity, the poise, the goodness, the kindness that actually rubs salt into the wounds of those who are deep down conscious that they are in rebellion against God. And the Christian is the light of the world, and light illumines. It illumines especially the darkness. It exposes 
what is going on in the darkness. And so, the Christian, just by being a Christian, even the dullest Christian, is going to find that he or she surprises those who aren't Christians. And it's not always pleasant to be taken by surprise. So, what is the secret of this life? Well, it's exactly what Martin Luther said. Those of you who are recovering Anglicans, or perhaps you're not even recovering from being an Anglican, remember the collect for morning prayer that speaks about God's service being perfect freedom. Now, that's something worldly people can't understand. You're either a servant or you're free, but you are not both. And Peter is saying that near to the heart of what it means to be a Christian is that you enjoy a bondage to the Lord Jesus that produces for you perfect freedom. This is one of the reasons the non-Christian cannot understand the appeal of the gospel, because to the non-Christian, coming to faith in Jesus Christ would be the end of their freedom, when actually what the gospel teaches us is it is only by coming to faith in Jesus Christ that freedom begins. Otherwise, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are a slave to your sin, you are a slave to the powers of darkness, and actually you're a slave to this world. Saw a man in a motorbike as we're going home from church this morning. Big man, big motorbike, big beard, dark, big power. And I thought to myself, boy, that man is so different. He's exactly the same as 50% of the people I see driving a motorbike. He is a dedicated follower of fashion, for those of you who remember the kinks in the day. He is enslaved to a style that projects an image, not a reality. And you see, when someone becomes a Christian, this is so obvious in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? We, we, we begin to be set free from those shackles, and we delight to live in a way that is in harmony with God's purpose and brings us into a very unusual sense of freedom. And you'll notice that Peter uses those expressions here doing the will of God and knowing what it is to live as a person who is free. How then do we live? Well, he gives us two basic principles in these verses. The first is this, that the Christian lives in submission in order to do good in society. The Christian lives in submission in order to do good in society. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Largely, he means government, but not exclusively, as the next sections will show. Because what we are after, verse 15, is this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance 
of foolish people. So, this is his overall concern, that the gospel lifestyle following the God who is good in the name of the Jesus who is good has the effect of closing the mouths of those who are hostile to the gospel. Because however much they want to hate what they see, they cannot deny that this is how life is meant to be. And over and over again, you hear this testimony from people who have become Christians that this, this is the thing that has drawn them into God's kingdom. They have held intellectually and morally and emotionally positions alien to and antagonistic to the gospel. But what they have found has been the fruit of that position. They have seen reversed in what has been created by the gospel in the lives of Christian people and in the life of the Christian community. And the first thing he's saying here is this actually applies to the state. Perhaps not least today when politics is very much the order of the day, the Christian will seem different from others because the Christian is willing to be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, notice incidentally that he is telling us what the state or the government is actually for. But notice at the same time, neither Peter nor any of the New Testament writers ever make the mistake that sometimes culturalized Christians make of saying this form of government is the best form of government that's ever been invented. In the West and the further West you move, people are likely to say democracy is the greatest form of government that's ever been invented. But actually, Scripture doesn't say that. Actually, when you think about it, nobody in the pages of Scripture from early days ever actually lived in a democracy. And of course, when Christians say that kind of thing, the tendency is then to hang the Christian gospel onto the coattails of democracy, isn't it? And as we've often seen, we've met, I can't believe you have not met Christians like this who, when they see democracy failing, draw the conclusion the kingdom of God is suffering disaster. And certainly in our own time, we're surely entitled to say, tell that to the Chinese Christians. So what Peter wants us to understand is that it's possible to live the Christian life no matter what kind of government we have. You might say, well, Peter presumably wrote this just at the beginning of the reign of the emperor Nero. It would only be a few years before Nero would be having Christians publicly lit in order to light the city of Rome in darkness. Peter wouldn't have written that a few years later on. 
except that Peter had known for years that he was almost certainly going to die at the hands of the state. Jesus had told them that, hadn't he? John 21, day's going to come when uh, you'll be taken and executed. Peter understood the nature of a hostile emperor. And yet at one and the same time, he's able to say, and he says it in these verses, be submissive to the state, but remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. Be submissive to the state as a human institution, but always remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. Of course, push would come to shove when Christians were cajoled to say, whatever you believe in your heart, just say, Caesar is Lord, and we will stop troubling you. Just say, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and that's okay, but the moment you want to say, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar is not Lord, then you're in trouble. And you see, this is the this is the duality within which the Christian lives because the Christian is usually a citizen of two different countries, the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the democracy or the, the totalitarian state or the mixed monarchy democracy that we have in the United Kingdom. And we're called to be the very best citizens there are in Scotland. And we need to understand that. We are called as Christians to do good. We are called, remember Jeremiah's words, to the exiles in Babylon where it was difficult to sing the Lord's song. Do good to the city. That's what God has put you in the city for, your salt and your light. And we're called to be the very best citizens whatever our government is, to be able to say to our government, we will be the very best citizens you can possibly find. And the reason? Because Jesus Christ is our Lord. Now, you see, the non-Christian can't understand that. The non-Christian's view of government is pure and simple. It's government. And I like it or I don't like it, I love it or I badmouth it. I obey it or I don't obey it. Very one-dimensional. But you see, the Christian doesn't just live in one world. The Christian lives in two worlds. The Christian is a citizen of a greater kingdom than the United Kingdom. Jesus is Lord but it's precisely because Jesus is Lord, because He is the master of my life, and among other things has said, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that you and I want to be the very best citizens we can be. We want to do good to our society. We aren't like non-Christians who badmouth what they don't like and insist that everybody should have the same political views they do. 
because we haven't a big stake in the ability of politicians. We understand that their role is very limited. It's to encourage the good and it's to discourage the bad. It's, it's very limited. But within those limitations, we are here to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and you see, this is the trick in every relationship as a Christian. Whereas a non-Christian might say, well, if you want to do good when this political party is in power and not constantly be bad-mouthing them, then uh, you, are, you are most in bondage. And now what's the answer to that? And the answer to that is this. I'm not doing it because that political party is in power. I'm not doing it because I think this is the best form of government. I'm doing it because Jesus is my Lord. See, he's going on to say that about slaves. He's going on to say about slaves, be the best possible slave you can be to your master. And worldly people will say, you can't say that. What you've got to say is slavery is bad and we rebel against it. Uh, but you see, Peter wants to say, I'm not the best possible slave I can be for his sake. I'm doing this for Jesus' sake. I'm serving my master. And you see, the world can't understand that. All the world can see is you're doing it because of the political position, or you're doing it because of this, or you're doing it because of that. And it doesn't understand just how free the Christian is. But the Christian is free to be a Christian in Soviet Russia in the old days. The Christian has been completely free to be a Christian in communist China, under Mao of all people, under Mao, free to be a Christian. Yes, like these early Christians, there are times when it costs you your life. But didn't Martin Luther teach us to sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth will triumph still? Don't we really believe the gospel? So you see there is this, there is this duality in the Christian that you don't find in the non-Christian. There's no way the non-Christian can have this duality because the non-Christian lives exclusively for this world. But you see, when the Christian is living for that world, as C.S. Lewis so well puts it, you look over history and surprise, surprise, the people who have made most impact on this world have usually been the people who have thought most of that other world, that other kingdom. And so because we belong to that kingdom, we're much more free than the people who belong only to this kingdom to serve to do good to all. As Peter puts it here, be subject for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution. So you see, here is the, here is the, the government person, uh, as it were, standing over you like something in a cartoon, thinking to himself, I've got that Christian to be obedient to me. And the Christian is laughing all the way to his prayer closet, saying, that foolish man, that ignorant man, that poor man, he is so blind, he thinks I'm doing this for him when I'm doing it for my Lord Jesus Christ. So this for Peter is a great secret that we that we are always this, this paradox to the world, that we live in submission because we seek, to, we seek to do good to our society. But we're not doing good to our society because we're in subjection to it. We're doing good in our society because we're in submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, of course, there comes times when push comes to shove. And it was Peter, remember, first, the first believer in history actually to articulate the principle, when push comes to shove, we obey God rather than man. But push doesn't always come to shove. And until push does come to shove, we don't disobey because we don't like the system, until the system insists that we do something that betrays our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, it becomes even more evident than it ever would have been that we weren't obeying authority because it was the final authority but because we wanted to please our Lord Jesus Christ, who has called us to do good to all men. You know, in some ways, perhaps more and more as we live as Christians in this society, we need to be thinking that every day we get up, every day we go into the office or college or the hospital or, or wherever we know we are going to be bad-mouthed, they don't know my secret. I'm going to do good to them. I'm going to do good to the company. I'm going to do good in the hospital. I'm going to do good in the college. Wherever I am, I'm going to do good. And I'm going to do it for my Lord Jesus Christ because He is my Lord. And notice that Peter emphasizes this. And this is the Peter who knows he is going to lose his life under this regime. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, who are these ignorant and foolish people? Actually, alas, it's everybody who isn't a Christian believer, isn't it? This is, this is just Paul's description of what it means not to be a believer. You're ignorant and you're foolish. And you hate being told it. 
you're ignorant and you're foolish, and you hate being told that. Why am I ignorant? Because I don't know God. And that's, that's, actually, that's what I was created for. I was actually created to know God. And the most obvious thing about my life is I don't know God. Oh God, I must be ignorant. And foolish, why foolish? Because as Paul says, God has embedded in our world and embedded in your heart all kinds of powerful evidences for His power and glory and why you should worship Him, and you have been so foolish as to turn away from every prompting you have ever experienced. And you spend your life resisting His will and His purpose. So, the Christian lives in submission in order to do good in society. But in addition to that, the Christian not only lives in submission in order to do good in society, the Christian lives free in order to serve God in the world. The Christian lives free in order to serve God in the world. Now, look at what he goes on to say in verse 16. Live as people who are free but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, there's that paradox as well. You're free, but you're free only because you're enslaved to God. You're free, but you're only free because you're His. That's, a, that's, that's incomprehensible to the non-Christian, isn't it? You can't be both free and a servant. But you see, Peter understands we were made to be servants and sons and daughters. That's our freedom. But we're only free to live so long as we live within the context for which we were made. We're hardwired for obedience to God. It, 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 for all we know this is intellectually true, it still boggles our emotions, doesn't it, when we see the effect of rejection of God's basic commandments in our society. Do you know what your taxes, those of you who pay taxes, do you know what they pay for? By and large, they pay for the results of sin. By and large. A sin-free world would be much easier on taxation. Apart from anything else, to, to catch a sense of the blindness of the society in which we live, you notice on the one hand, governments dismantling the law of God and its influence in our society, and on the other hand, tearing their hair out at the consequences of the dysfunctions that are produced by disobedience to that law. And at the same time, so foolish as to say, well, the one thing we know is societal dysfunction has got nothing to do with us rejecting the law of God. But every, every breakup in marriage, every 
adultery, all the attendant problems of abortion, all the dysfunctional relationships between children and parents, what are they at the end of the day? They're the fruit of a society that says, we will have nothing to do with these principles that God has embedded into our world in order that we may live free. And what happens? We are, we are like we live near the rail track from Dundee to Aberdeen and, and see some of these fast… I mean, it's not the fastest track in the country. I don't know what speed they're going, maybe 80 miles an hour? I don't think I would stand much chance if one of these things came off the tracks. But that's our society, isn't it? We won't have God's railway tracks. And we're surprised that the train produces havoc. It's exactly what Peter is speaking about here, foolishness and ignorance. So what's the difference in the Christian? Well, the Christian has come under the yoke of Jesus Christ and surprise, surprise, found it's easy. You imagine a, you imagine a, a, a tiny little bird just out you know, just out of the, the nest, saying to its mum, cut off these wings, they're far too heavy. You see, the thing about wings, I haven't tested this, but I've watched it. The thing about wings is that when you're flying with them, you don't feel any weight. They carry you along. And surprise, surprise, God's law is just like that. God's law for the believing heart is as heavy and as disadvantageous to the Christian's freedom as a wings are to a bird. And Peter has got it. He's understood it. And he understands actually there, there is this wonderful gospel paradox that the Spirit of God enables us to love the Word of God and gives us a desire to keep the commandments of God. And so, we are free, but we live simultaneously as servants of God. Now, look at what he says this goes on to imply. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. How does that work out in practice? Notice he has four commands. Command number two, three, and four, I think are probably just an exposition of command number one. Command number one is give everyone honor, period. Give everyone honor. Now, friends, how do you do that with the slob who works beside you? How, how do you give them honor? Now, if you can answer that question and do that, all the other people who work beside the slob, what are they going to say? I, I, why do you react that way to the slob? Why do you react that way? To, why do you honor the slob? Well, how do you do it? 
This would be a great place, incidentally, maybe for more than one reason, to finish this sermon, wouldn't it? This would become known in this church as the how do you honor the slob sermon. But how do you honor the slob? Because you're commanded to honor everybody. It doesn't say honor everybody, and then there's, there's no footnote here that says, Peter makes it clear, slobs are excluded. So how do you honor the slob? You want me to tell you? You honor the slob because you realize even the slob has been made as the image of God. You don't honor him or her slobesses. You don't honor them because they're slobs. You honor them because you understand in a way they don't understand the dignity for which they were created. And that's what you honor. And every moment in their lives where there seems to be just a little touch of a remembered dignity, because there's honor among slobs as well as among thieves. And do you know the strange thing about that is nobody else is going to do that. Nobody else is going to do that. So when you do it, everybody else, including the slob, is going to notice that you treat them as though you came from another world altogether. Remember the story about Professor Rendell Short, who was professor of surgery in Bristol, very well-known Christian man, and a non-Christian consultant took one of his patients to see Professor Short, a, a, a woman who was smelly, who was ragged, who that there was nothing whatsoever attractive. And this non-Christian said about Professor Short, do you know, he treated her as though she were a princess. You see, he saw that this woman was made to be a princess. So, we give honor to all, says the apostle Peter. But how does that work out? Well, in the church, we love the brotherhood and the sisterhood. There's a special way of honor in the church. Those of you who know the Apostles' Creed, has it ever struck you as being odd that the, the confession, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, follows, I believe in the communion of the saints? There's something actually quite odd about that. So, why should I believe in the forgiveness of sins, not precede I believe in the communion of saints? Because if you want to see where the forgiveness of sins shines most brightly, you look in the communion of the saints. That's the whole point. There's a special kind of love. And when non-Christians come among us, they're, they're supposed to be able to see it because it's a brotherhood, it's a sisterhood, it's a family. And then he says, this is how this honor works when it comes to God. How do you honor God? Well, we've seen this before in First Peter. You honor God by fearing Him. What does it mean to fear Him? It means that you cherish His smile upon your life. 
and you would do anything rather than lose that smile on his face. It comes from understanding how much he loves you. See, a non-Christian doesn't get that. All a non-Christian thinks is that the fear of God is terror. But you see, when you've seen the face of this God in Jesus Christ, you do not ever want to lose that smile upon your life. You don't ever want to lose a sense that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is smiling down upon you. And so, what about the emperor? Well, you honor the emperor as emperor. And you praise the emperor when the emperor does what emperors are supposed to do, to punish evil and to encourage the good. You don't worship the emperor. You honor the emperor. Do you know, that would probably make most of us stick out in most of the political arguments that we get into, wouldn't it? You know, you're either for her or against her whether it's Mrs. Thatcher in the past or our first minister, you're either for him or against him if he's the prime minister or leader of the opposition or, or whatever. What's different about the way in which the Christian speaks is that the Christian honors. That doesn't mean the Christian is naive. That mean, doesn't mean the Christian, especially in a democracy, is never critical. That means that there's always going to be a difference, that we're always going to be able to speak honorably where someone in position does that which someone in the position should do. And you see, the world can't understand it because it doesn't understand the gospel and it doesn't understand Jesus. Because actually, if you think about it for a little while, you'll realize that you could say in one sentence what Peter is saying here that's taken me so long to try to explain. And the one sentence is this. This is how Jesus lived. This is exactly what Jesus did. And you're called to be like Jesus and given Jesus' Spirit to make you more and more like Him. Sometime if you turn to this passage during the week, put Jesus into it, and I think you'll see that's where Peter learned every single word. Think about his submission. Think about the way in which he honored Think about the way in which he honored the dirty. Think about, the, think about little Zacchaeus and the way he honored him. Think about the woman at the well and the way he honored her. Why did he do that? And why did nobody understand why he was doing it? Because he'd seen what Peter was later to see and what we can see. And now, as Jesus once said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them.
And it's always true, isn't it? Something is going to happen in your life this week that is going to test the fact, and probably it'll happen in my life first, that is going to test the fact that we learn this from Scripture tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You tonight that there are passages in Your Word that are thrilling to us and exciting and full of Your mighty acts and full of Jesus Christ. And, and then there are passages that are bread and butter and oatmeal and very basic and nitty-gritty and that don't really excite us in our affections or particularly stimulate us in our minds. But You understand our lives and our needs, and we thank You for this Word and pray that You would help us in the increasingly difficult days in which we live to live according to Your Word. And very especially, Lord, we pray that as You bring people into our lives in the next few days, that they will be surprised, that non-Christians will be surprised, and indeed we may even be surprised by Your Spirit's work within us because in response to the mess they have made of their lives, we honor them because we see a shadow behind them of the image of God. And we speak to them with the love of Jesus because we also see a shadow behind them of the judgment seat of Christ at which one day they and we will stand. So help us to live, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We conclude our service this evening by singing together. We're going to stand to sing, To God Be the Glory. The band will lead us in that, and if we can remain standing for the benediction at the end. So if we can stand to sing, To God Be the Glory. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.